My friends, we continue in our study of the book of Acts. And this morning, I'd like to begin the sermon then by asking you to consider the prophecy that John the baptizer gave in the Gospels many years, obviously, before what we, what we read of taking place here in Acts chapter 1. Because we find that the events that happen in the book of Acts are the matter of prophecy sometime before. So in Luke 3 and verse 16, you'll remember that John, when he was preaching, he was preaching, he says, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now that's a, a prophecy that John the Baptist made, and it helps us to understand both what's coming in the book of Acts, but also what took place previously under the Old Covenant. And last time, we tried hard to, to help you to understand that what is taking place in the book of Acts is really God's response. It's the way that God resolves the problem of the Old Covenant, the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai was deficient in this respect. Again, not that, that God had, do, had made a mistake or that God had done nothing, something deficient. God had his reasons for it. But still, that covenant did not give the people the ability to perform the work that God was asking them to perform. The faithfulness, the obedience to God's laws and covenant that God had made with the people, they did not have the ability in and of themselves to be faithful to God's covenant. Now, as I was explaining this last week, I thought, you know, this is some pretty complicated things. Uh, maybe we need a picture. So I drafted this picture for you that I put in the notes to help you to understand the, uh, again, the, what, what we're trying to understand here is the flow of God's redemptive history, the history of God's work of redemption, his work of salvation. That unfolded. Uh, children, you can think of that in, you know, when you plant a seed, right? You might say that, that whole tree is, is bound up in that seed, right? Even if it's a mighty oak tree, it's all in that little seed, that little acorn or whatever kind of seed, whatever kind of tree you may be growing, it's all in that seed. But when that seed goes in the ground, it begins to grow, doesn't it? It becomes a, a little sprout, a tiny little sprout, right? If, if you stepped on it, it would just crack and be done. But a little sprout becomes much bigger and larger until pretty soon it's this vast tree, right? It all was there in that little seed. Now, in the same way, we can take God's promise, right? Remember that all of these covenants that God makes with his people in history are all simply chapters in the book of God's eternal covenant of grace that he made with the Lord Jesus Christ in eternity past. But now God is going to unfold that for his people. And he does that in stages, just like that little seed. God's whole covenant, you might say, is bound up in that little seed. And maybe we, I could say this morning to that little seed is what God told Adam and Eve, right? I will put enmity between you and the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, right? And the seed of the woman will crush your head. You might say that little seed was planted. And that seed began to grow. And you might say it became a, 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 a plant, a full plant when God came down to Abraham. Now, previously, God had made a covenant promise to Noah, right? That was another. I'll skip over that for now. But moving right to Abraham, God said to Abraham, I'm going to promise you three things, Abraham. I'm going to make a promise to you of land, of seed, and of blessing. 
Abraham was going to have the land of Canaan. God was going to give him seed as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. And God said to Abraham, through you, through your family, through your descendants, blessing will come to all the nations. Now that was a very large, you might say, unfolding of this chapter that God, or of this covenant of grace that God had made with his son, Jesus. And there's this covenant that God made with Abraham. In fact, many times when people speak of the covenant of grace, they're simply referring to God's covenant with Abraham. That was such an important moment, really one of the most important moments in the history of God's salvation. That plan, that covenant that he made with Abraham, he, he you might say, opened the book of his covenant salvation. And he showed Abraham, and now he shows us so much of what he intended to do for his people in time. Well, then, as we march forward in, in through, the, through history, we come to Mount Sinai. Because now God also makes a covenant with his people. Another chapter, you might say, of God's covenant of grace. But what a different chapter. What a different message it is. Now, in one sense, it's the same covenant, right? But now, instead of revealing grace and promises, as God did to Abraham, God reveals law. He reveals commandments. And he says, keep these commandments. Now, that can be a bit confusing to us, right? Because we think, well, then did God mean for his people Israel to be saved by keeping his law? Well, we know that that's not the case, right? We know from the New Testament, right, that God did not intend for his people to be justified by their obedience to the law. In fact, the very opposite, my friends. If you look at the verse that I put there, uh, notice the, the big gray box there, Mount Sinai. And under it, I have a quote from Acts 15, verse 10. But also look at that verse, Galatians 3, 19. Why then the law, or in other words, why did God make this covenant with his people at Mount Sinai? It was added because of transgressions. In other words, God gave his people all these laws and all these commandments, in a sense, to crush them. To bring them to that place where they would confess that they had no ability of their own to keep the laws of God. And my friends, as you read the Old Testament, and I mean now as you read the whole Old Testament, I'm not focusing on any particular part, but just as you read the Old Testament from the book of Joshua to the book of Judges, and, and, and stop a minute and think about the book of Judges. Just think about the whole book. What a, what a bizarre book. Why is that book in the Bible? The crazy stories you read in, in Judges of the, of the most, some of the... Uh, uh, obscene things that take place in that book, right? And then you move on, right? You move through the histories of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, the book of Chronicles, right? And what do you read? As I said last week, it's the history of a people failing to live up to God's standards. And my friends, that was a message that God intended to teach his people by bringing upon them, and that's why I represented it in my in my little diagram there with those four arrows pointing down, it's as if God gave this covenant as a burden. You know, I heard somebody explain it this way, that God's covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai was like if a son brings home a car and he wants to fix up this car. And dad comes out and says, well, let's, let me show you how to fix up this car. I'll show you how to do this and that and the next thing. And the son says, dad, no, I, I don't want any help. And the dad says, well, you don't know how to fix a car. Yes, I do, says the son. I sure do. I'll fix this car up just fine. 
the dad thinks to himself, no, I know my son does not know how to fix a car. He does, he's never done any mechanical work in his life. But, says dad, I'll let him. And as he gets into it, and as he starts pulling off the bolts, as he starts pulling off the parts, and he gets into it and realizes that he doesn't know what he's doing, he will come and ask me for help. And then we can work together and I can show him properly how to build a car. And in, in so many respects, my friends, that's what God did with his people Israel. You might say he, he put these laws upon them. And remember, in the book of Joshua, the people of Israel are very enthusiastic. Yes, we will keep these laws. Remember, Joshua said, choose ye this day whom ye will serve, the God of Israel or the God of the nations around you. And Israel says, we will serve the, the Lord. We will keep his commandments. We will be faithful to his covenant. Well, they were very enthusiastic. But again, the rest of the history of Israel shows that they were a failure. They could not keep God's laws and God's commandments. Paul says in Acts 15.10, he says the, the, the covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai was a yoke or a burden which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. That's what Paul says about the old covenant. And that's why I say that you might say as God made this covenant of grace and these, and these beautiful promises of grace, of land and seed and blessing to Abraham... As time went on, God put this heavy burden, right? You can, you can almost imagine a lead weight that God puts down on his people, right? And, they, and they're crippled under it, right? They, they soon begin to realize, it soon becomes very apparent to them that they do not have whatever it might take. They do not have what it takes to keep God's law. In fact, the Apostle Paul, I put this text in that box in the lower right there, 2 Corinthians 3, he calls it a ministry of death. That's because it was a ministry that led people to die. It led them to die to themselves. They realized that they didn't have what it took. But thanks be to God, the lesson of Mount Sinai was a temporary thing. It was a temporary lesson. God, God proved his point to them, you might say. And in Hebrews 8 verse 13, right, you see that arrow going off to the right and up, right? God lifted that covenant off them. When Jesus came into this earth, he announced the coming of the kingdom of God. And he lifted that old covenant. Praise God for that. He lifted that old covenant, that, old, that burden that neither our fathers nor we were able to carry. He lifted it off them. And Jesus came and announced a new covenant, a better covenant. Now, last time we considered it already in the prophets, how the prophets have prophesied about that, right? They said that God's going to make a new covenant. He's going to write his law upon our hearts. Oh, what a difference that will make. God will pour out his spirit upon his people. And this will enable them to keep God's commandments. And my friends, when we come in the book of Acts, then we, as I said last week, now we are spectators to what God is going to do for his people. This morning, it's as if we, we, we pull up a chair or we, we find our seat and we watch in this arena before us to see what God is going to do for his people. And that's why we objected last week to the title, The Acts of the Apostles. Because really what we have is the acts of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to come down upon his people. Now the language that is given us in Luke 3 verse 16 from John the Baptist is he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now that word is very important, isn't it? Because in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, in the, under the Old Covenant, we saw the Spirit come down on certain individuals. Do you remember the names of the architects of the tabernacle? Bezalel and Aholiab, right? These were the men who God gave special gifts 
to design and fashion the tabernacle. And we read that the Spirit of God came upon them to give them that gift. We read that the Spirit of God came down upon Joshua so that he could perform his task. The Spirit of God came on Samson. The Spirit of God came upon David. But that's not a, that's not a baptism, is it? And again, think about a baptism here, not so much a... Well, think about a baptism as, as, a, as, a, as a being a drenched, right? A, being a, a flood of water coming down upon you. But now John the Baptist prophesies there's going to be a baptism, not the Holy Spirit here and the Holy Spirit there, but there's going to be a baptism of the Spirit coming down upon people, upon all the people of God. So that's the difference between the Spirit of God in the Old Testament and under the Old Covenant and under the New Covenant. Now, very quickly, just I want to say this because many people will say, well, wasn't the Holy Spirit on all the people of God in the Old Testament? Otherwise, how could they have been saved, right? This is actually a difficult question. Certainly, if, if they were saved, the Holy Spirit had to regenerate them, right? Then nobody will come to faith unless the Spirit of God goes before and they have the new birth. So yes, in that sense, that savingly, the Spirit of God came upon all the saints in the Old Testament and brought them to faith. But it seems that, that the book of Acts is talking more about the Spirit of God coming down on people to empower them and to enable them to, to do certain tasks that God has called them to perform. Now, that's a, that's a difficult question because uh, uh, I, I remember uh, when I used to work at the seminary too, that was a lot of discussion of how does the Spirit work in the Old Testament as opposed to the New Covenant. Suffice it to say now, my friends, that certainly anybody at any time and at any place who is saved is given the new birth by the Holy Spirit of God, right? That, that certainly is, is the case. The Bible clearly teaches that. No one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit of God. And yet there was a much less of, an, of, a, of, a, of the work and the ministry of the Spirit of God amongst the Old Testament saints than was going to be under the New Covenant. Under the Old Testament, it was going to be here and there and here and there upon the saints of God. But in the, in the New Covenant, a baptism, a, an immersion, right, a, a drenching, is, is the idea here, upon all the people of God. Well, my friends, I want to quickly move to Jesus' baptism, because first the Spirit of God comes down upon Jesus. Now in Luke 3 and verse 21, notice in Luke 3 and verse 16, is when we had the prophecy that John the Baptist makes. But in Luke 3 and verse 21, we read about the baptism of Jesus. Now, when all the people were baptized, that is, when John the Baptist, right, or John the Baptizer, was baptizing all these people, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. So this is the baptism of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit comes down in power upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what happens then? What, what effect does that have? Of what significance is that? What is the result? Well, if you go to Luke chapter 4, you can see the results. Look at Luke 4 and verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. 
Then what follows then is Jesus under the temptation of the devil. And how is it that Jesus is able to sustain the temptations that Satan brings against him three times? Because he's full of the Spirit. He's full of the Spirit. It continues on in Luke uh, 4 and verse 14, because Jesus goes on to do more things. And Jesus returned to Galilee. So this is Luke 4 and verse 14. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. There you see it again, in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching. So he teaches. In verse 18, he quotes from Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And then you can read what happens in verse 34. So he continues to teach. But notice what happens in verse 34. Jesus meets, or in verse 33, in the synagogue there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, let us alone. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing him any harm. So Jesus has power, doesn't he? He has power to throw out this demon. How does, how does he have this power? It's the power of the Holy Spirit on Jesus. In verse 38, Jesus comes into Simon's home. Simon's mother-in-law is suffering from a fever, and Jesus cures her. In verse 41, we read that it doesn't stop. In verse 40, that while the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And laying his hands on each one of them, he was healing them. Demons also were coming out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God. But rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak, because they knew him to be the Christ. So, my friends, the Spirit of God comes down upon Jesus. And you see the effect, that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is power. And Jesus has power to teach. He has power to heal. He has power even to throw demons out of people, just with the word of his mouth. So what was the secret to Jesus' power? It was the Holy Spirit of God working through him and giving him a power that was not his own. Jesus had that amazing power. Now we come to the book of Acts because we find that Jesus now begins to speak to the disciples. He knows that he is going to leave. He's going to ascend into heaven. But in Acts 1 and verse 3, Jesus presents himself by many convincing proofs. He appears to his disciples over a period of 40 days. And then notice this glass clause. And speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Now what are those things? Over a 40-day period, Jesus is teaching and instructing his disciples about the kingdom of God. Well, my friends, we must believe that those things that Jesus was teaching them was about the expansion of the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God was going to begin in Jerusalem. It was going to spread to Judea, and then to Samaria, and then to the uttermost reaches of the world. As we have in verse 4, he gathers them together, tells them to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water. Right? Notice he says, which you heard of from me. In other words, Jesus had been teaching them about this. This baptism of the Spirit is coming. You're to wait for it. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. 
So we see, my friends, in the Old Testament that the Spirit of God comes down upon certain people and empowers them to perform certain tasks. We've seen how the Spirit of God came down upon Jesus, enabling him to teach and to throw out demons and to heal people with diseases to perform miracles. But now comes the miracle of the book of Acts, that the Spirit of God will come down upon the apostles. And in fact, the Spirit of God will come down upon all of the people of God. Why? Because Jesus has given them this mandate in verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. Right? First, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Then you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. How will the apostles do the work that God has called them to do? Does God give commandments and then just expect them to move, expect them to obey, go out and do it. No, God gives commands, and he gives the power to keep those commands. That, my friends, is the blessing of the new covenant. That God not only gives commandments and expectations, but he gives the power in the person of the Holy Spirit to meet those demands. So the apostles also are baptized. Well, let me then move to these applications. Success. My friends, this is something that we have to confess, every one of us, as Christian people. That God has called us to a ministry. God has called us to serve him in this world. Whatever that ministry may be, different for each person. God's calling is unique to each one. But my friends, our success as Christians is entirely dependent upon the Holy Spirit of God. Any power that we have any success that we have in the Christian life is traceable directly to the ministry of the Spirit of God within us. Success as Christians individually in overcoming sin only by the power of the Spirit. Success in our family life. Success in, in, in parenting children. Success in being a husband or a wife by the power of the Spirit of God. Success in ministry, as elders, as deacons, as pastor, and in whatever ministry God may have called you to perform, only by the power of the Spirit of God. Now, in a sense, that's somewhat difficult for us to grasp, isn't it? We don't directly feel the power of the Spirit upon us, do we? We don't. We don't sense that when we come into a situation, usually, sometimes it's different, but usually we don't sense some kind of power flowing into us that suddenly enables us to do this or that. And so you might say the Holy Spirit's ministry is rather invisible to us. We don't see it or feel it directly. And yet, my friends, as Christians who believe in the scriptures, we must confess today, even when we can't see it or sense it in some way, that we never can take one step in the Christian life without the Spirit of God empowering us and enabling us to do it. And isn't that why we read so much in the first chapters of Acts of how much the first Christians were in prayer? In Acts 1.14, we read this. In verse 14, These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer, 
along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Now, prayer, too, is something that is, is difficult for us, uh, especially uh, in our, in our uh, situation where we're so wealthy and we're so well provided for, and we have so many means to minister to our comfort. Maybe it's slightly different in countries where they really have to look for their daily bread. You might say, to, to put it in business words, sometimes when we, when we pray, we wonder, uh, what's the return on my investment for this prayer? Isn't that the case? That we pray and we wonder, did I get anything back for that? Did that do anything for me? That's, that's how we're kind of trained to think in our culture, in our society, aren't we? And isn't that why prayer is such a difficult thing for us? Because it seems like it doesn't really do anything for me. In a sense, we're kind of very practical people, right? And we look for a return. We look for, you know, I mean, that's how we run our businesses, right? If we don't see an adequate return on it, well, we don't do that anymore. That's not something that's profiting us. And as Christians, too, I think we can begin to have this sense, right? That, well, prayer is important, yes, but since we don't really sense or see or, or feel any kind of anything that it does for us, it's very easy to neglect it. And I think it's, it's very easy, especially for us in our situation, to neglect prayer. And that's why these first chapters of Acts, I think, can, can minister to us so powerfully, my friends. To move us back into that place where we own and we, we recognize in the first place that we can't take one step in the Christian life without the Holy Spirit. Now, I know as Calvinists, we say, well, you can never become a Christian without the Holy Spirit. But let's be consistent, Calvinists. My friends, we, we can't become a Christian without the Holy Spirit, but neither can we be and live as Christians without the Spirit of God. And that's why, my friends, it needs to be a daily routine in our life for prayer. Prayer brings us close to God, and it brings us to own our complete dependence upon the Spirit for our life as Christians. And that's why we persevere in prayer. It's not the only reason why we persevere in prayer, but it's one of the reasons we persevere in prayer. If nothing else, my friends, it testifies to God that we cannot take a step without him. I hope we can see that in this first chapter of Acts. My second application is a bit theological because I wanted to deal with this from the Pentecostals. You know that this church used to be an Assemblies of God church, right? And I put on the outline there the doctrinal statement from the Assemblies of God church because they see the baptism of the Holy Spirit as something, as something different. Notice that it says here, all, believer, all believers are entitled to and should ardently expect and earnestly seek the promise of the Father, the baptism in the Holy Spirit and fire, according to the command of our Lord Jesus Christ. This was the normal experience of all in the early Christian church. With it comes the endowment, or the, uh, the gift of power for life and service, the bestowment of the gifts and their uses in the work of the ministry. This experience is distinct from and subsequent to the experience of the new birth. <clears throat> now, the Assemblies of God, our brothers and sisters, again, I, I, I say that, right? The, our brothers and sisters, they're fellow Christians with us. They believe in that the pattern given us in Acts chapter 2, which is coming, is a pattern that is normal for all Christians. Okay? And that is that first we're given the new birth. By the Spirit of God, we are brought into union with Christ, and we, are, we become Christians. Then... There is baptism, water baptism, 
In other words, immersion as a Christian, as a believer. And then subsequent to that is baptism in the Holy Spirit. First, faith in Christ, being born again by the Spirit of God. Second is water baptism. And third is baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the assemblies of God, their literature, will chastise Christians for doing the first two, for being becoming Christians, right? And then having water baptism, but then not going on and seeking that second blessing, that further blessing of spirit baptism. They say you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit or you'll never be effective as a Christian. You'll be a weak, powerless Christian. But when you experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you will have such power flowing through you that your ministry will be completely and radically changed. So be sure you, you understand that for them, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is, a, is an experience that you have. It's a very powerful experience that you have and that you can testify to. Uh, people will talk about uh, how, they, how they were... I remember talking to one man who said he was in his truck. And uh, suddenly he felt the wind blowing up through the bottom of his truck, blowing through him and blowing back out. And this experience had an amazing effect upon this man. I've had other people tell me, uh, this is especially when I was working amongst uh, inmates, how the, uh, they, they were falling into a pit. They were falling into a dark, dark pit. All they could see was blackness and darkness, and they were falling into this pit. And when, when all hope was lost, they looked up and they saw a tiny glint of light. And as they looked up, the light got bigger and bigger, and finally they were, they were rescued. But these are tremendous experiences that many of these people profess to have. And they call this the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Then paragraph 8 takes it one step further. The baptism of believers in the Holy Ghost is witnessed by the initial physical sign of speaking with other tongues as the Spirit of God gives them utterance. Now this tongue speaking that the Assemblies of God and the Pentecostal people claim is the evidence of being baptized with the Holy Spirit is not speaking in other languages, like say uh, suddenly I could speak German, right? Or suddenly I could speak French. No, this is a, a speaking in a, in a language that would not make any sense to any of us. It would... It, to us, it would sound like complete gibberish. Uh, but, but to them, it is a speaking in the tongue, speaking in tongues, and it's a Holy Spirit tongue, as they would say it. And it's a, a tongue that the Holy Spirit has given them, a language, as it were. But it's no recognizable human language that, you know, say, if you knew that language, you'd understand what they were saying. Now, what do we say to this? Well, of course, first of all, we're going to be somewhat critical of it. And that is because, again, I take you back to this chart on the first page, my friends. The baptism of the Holy Spirit was a specific time in the history of God's redemptive plan. And what happened to the Christians at that time is they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit for the first time. And it was a transition out of the Old Covenant and into the New Covenant. Out of the ministry of death, as Paul calls it, and into the ministry of the Spirit. And this baptism of the Spirit was different than what was under the Old Covenant. But it was unique to that time in history. It was unique to that time period in the book of Acts. And so the baptism of the Holy Spirit happened for the first time in a unique way. Now, in later history, in your history and in my history, Paul explains what the baptism of the Spirit is in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13. In 1 Corinthians 12, and verse 13, <clears throat> Paul writes, 
Let me begin in verse 12. Here Paul's talking about the body of Christ, for even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by, or I really wish they had translated that, for with one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. And so, my friends, what Paul is saying there is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit for Christians, now not for the first Christians who were already Christians when the baptism of the Holy Spirit first came in the book of Acts, but for those of us now who are Christians, we are baptized with the Holy Spirit when we are brought into union with the body of Christ, when we are joined to Jesus Christ. Right? For with one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, that is the body of Christ, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and so on. So that the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Reformed theology has often just been uh, understood together with regeneration. Right? The act of the Spirit of God whereby we were brought into union with Christ, where we were given faith and repentance and enabled then to convert and to turn to God in faith. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. So that is our response then to our Pentecostal brothers and sisters. And, and that's why in Reformed churches, you probably haven't heard so much of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We don't really speak much about it. I think that's a problem. The baptism of the Holy Spirit clearly is something that Scripture teaches. It clearly is something that happens in the life of every believer. Now, where we disagree with the Assemblies of God is, first of all, we wouldn't say that it is an experience. It is not anything that you can... That you, it's non-experiential. It is a change that happens in your life. When the Spirit of God comes in your life and joins you to Jesus Christ, now the, the effects of it are deeply experiential, right? Obviously, your whole life changes. Everything changes. But the particular act itself, which we call the baptism, or which Scripture calls the baptism of the Holy Spirit, is not an experience that we can look to. It is something by which we are brought into union with the body of Christ, as Paul teaches. So that is our understanding of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And as for speaking in tongues, Paul will say more about that in 1 Corinthians. And again, it's not something that we look for in our own churches because of the uniqueness of the first baptism of the Holy Spirit, the uniqueness of when it came in redemptive history. But I want to move then to my third application, my friends, because I do want to say something about experience, because here I believe is something that we can learn from the Pentecostal brothers and sisters. Is it not the case, dear friends, that many of us in Reformed churches, and maybe I can even be very specific, even our Reformed church, are deeply nervous talking about experience. We don't like to talk about our experiences, and especially our spiritual experiences, the experiences that we have in the life of faith. Now, again, I'm not going to call that a baptism of the Holy Spirit because I think that's something unique that happens at the very beginning of the Christian life. But there's no question that the Apostle talks about other acts of the Holy Spirit that are ongoing in the Christian life. Paul will talk about the Spirit witnessing to our spirits that we are the children of God. Paul will talk on a number of different occasions about being filled with the Spirit. Paul will talk about grieving the Holy Spirit. And my friends, I think that this is an area in which we can grow as Christian people. And I'm speaking very specifically to this body of believers right here. I think that we are too 
reticent, too hesitant to pray for such experiences in the first place, and second of all, to speak about them. Now, I know that it's very dangerous to talk about our own experience because just as soon as we start, they're very dangerous that we slip into a little pride, isn't it? And we begin to talk of ourselves as if we are some, something special. I know we have to be careful of that. But my friends, it used to be a thing in the, in the old Dutch churches that the people of God would get together and, and discuss how God had led them in their life and how he was leading them in life. And it was a deeply experiential thing. And I think we need to recover something of that in our day. And I know that there's, there's an extreme on both ends. There's, there's people who can talk endlessly about their experiences and how God told them this and God said that to them. And the other day, they, you know, and, 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 and I don't think that we need to go there. But isn't there another extreme, too, where we, we, we almost become rationalist kind of Christians, where we just live our life without the Spirit of God ever ministering to us, without the Spirit of God ever touching us, and again, I, I think that probably in your life, you can think of times. You can think of times when the Holy Spirit touched you in a special way. When heaven, as it were, came down into your soul. And the Holy Spirit gave you a sense of his presence and of his nearness in a way that you, you can never forget. I remember an old minister telling me in, in, uh, when I was quite young, he was... He had been involved in a, in a difficult case in his ministry, and he was on his bike. He was riding on the dike, and he's in the Netherlands. He was riding on the bike home. And as he looked out over the North Sea, you know the North Sea was almost always tempestuous and stormy, right? He said, suddenly, that verse from, a, uh, from the psalm came into, his, into his, his mind with such power. He will ever turn your sorrow into gladness on the morrow. And that's not even from the psalm. That's from the, the Psalter that he actually sang. But he says immediately, the anxiety and the stress was lifted off him. And I just give you this one story, not to glorify this one man, but to say what, what I sense probably many of us have experienced, but very few of us speak about. And would it not be encouraging, my friends, for us to speak about these things to each other and to talk about what the Holy Spirit has done in our life, not in a prideful, arrogant way, as if, as if we're a little bit above the, the normal Christians, right? I think that's a problem with Pentecostals. Many of them are so focused on that one crisis experience that they call the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that they fix everything on that. No, I think the Spirit of God comes to us in, in an infinite variety of different ways. More powerfully at one time, less powerfully at another time. But especially in the ordinary course of our life, that sometimes he can nudge loose a text of scripture that speaks to us in that particular moment. He can bring back to our minds this or that. Sometimes it's just an experience, just a sense of his nearness. I think in that sense, my friends, we have much to learn from the Pentecostals. That might be kind of hard for us to say, isn't it, that we have something to learn from the Pentecostals. But I think it's something we should admit to and confess to. And in the book of Acts, I think we're going to see a ministry of the Spirit that is very powerful and deeply experiential and something that can uh, that maybe can teach us something in our own time in our own in our own life not to fixate on it certainly not to think that experience is something that can take the place of Christ our salvation is in Christ not some experience 
but maybe that the experience leads us closer to Christ. It leads us more. In fact, I would say that is the mark of true spirit-worked experience in our life, that it leads us closer to the feet of Jesus. It leads us to take fast hold of him and to lean on him more. And I suspect, as I've said already, that many of you can testify to such things. And sometimes I wish you would. May God bless these words to us, dear friends. Let us come before the Lord in prayer. Lord, we draw near to you at the close of this service. And we're thankful, Lord, that the Spirit of God, though he is such a hidden person in our life, that yet at times he does speak to us and touch us in a powerful way. And those times are unforgettable to us. We pray, Lord, that such experiences would ever lead us closer to the feet of Jesus. And that the ministry of the Spirit, who is to take the things of Christ and to show them to us, that these things would lead us to worship the Lord Jesus Christ and to cleave to him ever the stronger. Lord, I pray that you would bless our study then of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that even as you have baptized with the Spirit, Lord, to join us to Jesus Christ and to his body of believers, we thank you for this work. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to minister to us by your power and that we would be open to it and that we would not be, Lord, a, a kind of rationalist Christian that lives by his own power and by his own, by his own ingenuity and, and, and strength, by his own perseverance, but, but that he would live in the power of the Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would be our teacher this morning then and bless and keep us. We pray, Lord, that you would return us also this evening that we may sit under your word once more. And all these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Let's turn in the red hymnal to number 212. Number 212. Come thou, almighty King, help us thy name to sing. Help us to praise Father all-glorious or all-victorious. Come and reign over us, ancient of days. So we'll sing all four verses of number 212 in the red hymnal.
peace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.